0: It is another blessedness that we have this evening to come together on an occasion such as this one to give our attention to those matters that truly are shared forth with us through the Word of God. And Brother Harold just read for us a moment ago from Isaiah 55 verse number 11 in which God there promised that His Word would not return unto Him void but that it would accomplish that, in fact, that pleased Him. This evening as we give the next thought in our series of lessons on Bible translations... We in fact come to the fourth installment of that series, and in fact by way of review here are just a few of the things we have encountered previously. We have learned first of all how important it is to give thought to the nature of translations, the blessedness that they can be to us, allowing us to read the scriptures in a language such as English, despite the fact that that was not the original languages in which the scriptures were in fact given. We've also seen along that same line how eternally significant it is that God's Word be handled rightly and that those translators take seriously the charge and the labor that is set before them. As you can see about the middle of that slide, we also saw the incredible danger and somewhat the shocking reality how that one can obtain Bibles that teach almost what doctrine you would prefer it to teach, rather than that doctrine that God, in fact, set forth from the halls of heaven. With those said, one of the next things that we, in fact, did was convince ourselves of the reliability of the original autographs. And with that, we then last week looked at two particular translations. On the one hand, we looked at the so-called Good News Bible, and learned it really wasn't so much good news given the nature of what it presented. And we also looked at the Cotton Patch Bible and also found there were great problems associated with it. And thus, we concluded that those two would not be cataloged as reliable, those that would be trustworthy for personal study or to recommend to others. Tonight, let us look at some more translations. You'll notice at the bottom, we're going to look at the LBP, as well as the N-E-B, and in addition, along the way, we'll also give thought to their successors. So in a way, we will look at those two and those that in fact, over the years come from them. As we give thought again to these matters of the translations of the Word of God, our sole interest is again to make comparison or thought as to were those translators operating under the principle of a word-for-word translation... Or were they rather operating on a methodology of equivalence dynamically? That is to say, interpreting it or what they thought it was teaching and setting that forth as the things contained in God's Word. As we look at that LBP, you'll notice that is the Living Bible paraphrased is in fact what that stands for. And it was an exceedingly popular translation and version some years back. I have written there at the top just a few of the features about it of which might be of interest to us. Kenneth Taylor was the gentleman principally behind this particular translation as its editor. And in fact, the entire Bible was set forth in 1971. It was enormously popular. As you can see, partly that great popularity came from the nature that Billy Graham was a tremendous supporter of it. Quite often, he would give these particular Bibles away at the Crusades he would participate in and conduct. And as such, he even openly and publicly endorsed it. And as you can well imagine, given his popularity himself, many of these also became exceedingly popular. I thought we would begin by making one interesting note from the very preface of this particular translation. In fact, it seems to speak volumes about the character and thrust of the work in which Mr. Taylor was involved. And I would invite you to notice the way in which it reads. There are dangers in paraphrases, as well as values for whenever the author's exact words are not translated from the original languages. There is a possibility that the translator, however honest, may be giving the English reader something that the original writer did not mean to say. This is because a paraphrase is guided not only by the translator's skill in simplifying, but also by the clarity of his understanding of what the author meant and by his theology. This gentleman really has said a great deal. He has in fact thrown up a tremendous number of red flags, asserting that a paraphrase is dangerous, because it relies not certainly only on the original text, but on the author's theology and on the author's understanding of the context and circumstances that are in that location in the Scriptures. All of us would wholeheartedly concur with the warnings that he has asserted, but yet he did proceed to put together this particular LBP, and as he did so, let us look at just a few of its passages and see if we can draw some conclusions about the nature of this living Bible paraphrased. First of all, this particular paraphrase, this LBP, overwhelmingly teaches what you and I would recognize as premillennialism. In fact, it is thoroughly ingrained in it and that seems to have been the operating principle on which Mr. Taylor, as far as theology, approached several passages. In fact, let's consider Isaiah 2 verses 1 through 4. In fact, that's what I've written on this particular slide. And as you can see, it's a bit lengthy, but it will not be at all difficult to ascertain the point that Mr. Taylor was making. This is another message to Isaiah from the Lord concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, Jerusalem and the temple of the Lord will become the world's greatest attraction. And people from many lands will flow there to worship the Lord. Come, Everyone will say, "'Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Israel. There He will teach us His laws, and we will obey them. For in those days the world will be ruled from Jerusalem. The Lord will settle international disputes. All the nations will convert their weapons of war into implements of peace. Then, at the last, all wars will stop and all military training will end.'" O Israel, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord and be obedient to His laws. It's not difficult at all to ascertain the thrust of that passage. When Mr. Taylor has gone so far as to say the world will be ruled from Jerusalem, and when he has gone so far as to say the Lord from that location will settle international disputes, He has, in fact, inserted into that passage in Isaiah chapter 2 what, in fact, was not even close to being there. He has taken a passage that foretold the grandeur, greatness, and majesty of the church and turned it into a premillennial passage. In so doing, of course, he erred greatly. I would ask you to also notice in 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, a passage, of course, found much later in the New Testament era. That is a passage with which we are certainly very familiar. In fact, on that occasion, Paul, in writing to Timothy, said, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Having given some thought to that rendition of that passage, listen to how Mr. Taylor translated it. And so I solemnly urge you before God and before Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when He appears to set up His kingdom. As if at that time the kingdom was not yet set up, as if at that time the kingdom had not been established, when that runs counter to the thoroughness and appreciation of what is found throughout the New Testament passages. Christ set up His kingdom long before the events of 2 Timothy 4.1. In fact, isn't it amazing that in Colossians 1.13, Paul, in writing to the church in Colossae, said, You have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Christ's kingdom, thus, was already an establishment, but yet Mr. Taylor gave the definite impression that the kingdom would not be established until Christ comes back the second time. As we can already see, this translation appears to have definitive problems with agreement, not only to the sacred text, but also to a host of other New Testament passages. But let's consider yet another issue that could well be raised relative to the living Bible paraphrase. May I submit to you, this particular translation teaches the doctrine of original sin... In fact, let's look at the way in which the passage was rendered, and then we'll discuss more thoroughly what is meant by that which I put in quotation marks, original sin. As you can well see in Psalm 51 verse 5, Mr. Taylor has this rendering of that passage. But I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. And there we have it that Mr. Taylor asserts, that he was born, he entered this world as a sinner. It's clear, again, that he was laboring under that impression. However, the King James and other notable translations do not render the passage in any such way as that. Notice also along that same line, Ephesians 2, verse number 3. Again, drawn from the New Testament, drawn from the writing of the Apostle Paul, drawn from that epistle written to the Ephesian brethren... Notice the way that he renders this one. All of us used to be just as they were, or as they are. Our lives expressing the evil within us, doing everything wicked, doing every wicked thing that our passions of our evil thoughts might lead us into. We started out bad, being born with evil natures, and were under God's anger just like everyone else. Started out bad, he wrote... Being born with evil natures, he wrote. Without question, Mr. Taylor then asserts in a number of places the fact that a baby in entering this world, at least in his translation, enters as a degraded sinner. Enters as one who is far removed from the purity and power of the nature that the New Testament asserts concerning that babe. This matter of original sin... We understand well that the Scriptures do not teach that sin is inherited. Sin, in fact, is not inherited. It is something committed. In 1 John 3, verse 4, "...whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law." And thus we learn sin is never inherited. We will remember in Ezekiel 18, verse number 20, "...the soul that sinneth, it shall die." "...the Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son, but the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon Him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon Him." In all those passages, as well as a whole host of others, it's easy to see that sin is not inherited. It is that which I am guilty of when I commit it. And the same, of course, is true for all other individuals." And thus a baby is not born in sin. Is it not written for us in Ezekiel 28, 15? Again, written long in the days of the Old Testament, but yet that which presents the lovely truth on this point. When writing to the king of Tyre, their God through the inspired writer Ezekiel had this to say, Thou wast perfect in all thy ways, from the time thou wast conceived until iniquity was found in thee. Here was the king of Tyre, a pagan ruler, a pagan leader, and yet the inspired prophet said he was born pure. He was born with the character and goodness of that which is the creation and provision of God. Are we not told in Zechariah 12 verse number 1 that in fact it is the great God of heaven who forms the spirit of man within him and is not that rhetorical question of Hebrews 12 verse 9 asked? Shall not the Father of our spirits? Of course, speaking of God who provides us with the spirit that is us. In each of those ways, we can then see and ask a good question. If God's the one that forms the spirit of man within Him, and He is, Zechariah 12.1, and if it is that great God of heaven who in fact provides that soul, God, of course, is not evil. We learned that in James 1, of course, verses 12 and following. How could that God form an evil spirit? And how could that God, in fact, make available that evilness of spirit? Well, obviously He hasn't. And Mr. Taylor is thus in grave error in presenting a translation that gives the impression that a babe is born with a sinful, debauched, degraded character. For such is not at all the case." Wasn't it Jesus who in Matthew 18, verses 1 to 3 said, "'Suffer the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven.'" And so if it is the case that little babies are born in sin, apparently the Lord was there saying, "'Bring me those, for in fact the kingdom was full of sinners.'" We can well notice in those passages that was far removed from the Lord's teaching. He was asserting the innocence, the purity, the character and nature of those youngsters— In light of all of these things, might we look at perhaps something else to be seen in the living Bible paraphrase. Something about its nature concerning baptism. In the following passage, drawn from Romans chapter 6, verse number 4, we next are appreciative of the manner in which there Paul presented the truth on the subject of baptism. Beginning in verse 3, Paul wrote, "'Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? "'Therefore we are buried by Him, by baptism, with Him into death, "'that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, "'even so we also should walk in newness of life.'" With those statements before us in a passage with which we're likely familiar, listen to the way that Mr. Taylor renders verse 4 of that verse. It reads as follows Your old sin loving nature was buried with Him by baptism when He died. And when God the Father, with glorious power, brought Him back to life again, you were given His wonderful new life to enjoy. As one seeks in that passage to find anything descriptive of, or even seemingly relative to, the issue of baptism, one seems to look in vain. He has completely removed that word baptism that does appear in the Greek text. You'll notice He removed it entirely and only made a passing reference to it in terms of it was when Christ died. He gave no impetus to the fact that we should be baptized. He gave no impression to it in likeness to the thoroughness and power that's actually behind that. And as if that isn't enough, look at what He did to 1 Peter 3.21. We're familiar with that passage that reads, "...the like figure to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ." Listen to Mr. Taylor's rendering of that same passage. "...in baptism we show that we have been saved from death and doomed by the resurrection of Christ, not because our bodies are washed clean by water." but because in being baptized we are turning to God and asking Him to cleanse our hearts from sin. He has changed completely the thrust of that particular passage, hasn't he? Notice he removed from it the character of the likeness as Peter drew it to the nature of the flood of waters of Noah's day. And he also made that rather dramatic change that we have been saved from death and doomed by the resurrection of Christ. To notice again the comparison between that passage and that reading that we noted earlier from a different translation, it is somewhat shocking to give note to, in fact, what he has now asserted. As you can see in all of them, it seems to me that Mr. Taylor has even contradicted himself. If you compare this reading to the one we just read in Romans 6 verse 4, they actually, it seems to me, are impossible to both be correct. He has contradicted Himself relative to His presentation of the nature and meaning of baptism. As you can also see based on that, all of these have already begun to call to our minds a question of the usability of this particular translation. I would ask you to notice that this particular translation was significantly revised because there were those who had begun to appreciate some of the very things that you and I have noticed this evening. Issues concerning difficulties as it related to the original passages in Greek. And so a significant revision was undertaken in 1996. You'll notice that particular translation, this revision, if you will, is called the NLT the New Living Translation. It might in fact be worth our while, at least in passing, to notice a thing or two about it. I have quickly, though, noted this. It really is merely a revision. Starting from the basic Living Bible paraphrase, they took some of its passages and altered them, rewrote them, changed them, but did not seek to make an original translation. It was merely only revision, and thus many of the errors present in the LBP are also found in this translation described as a New Living Translation. In fact, the very authors in the preface to that NLT still claim to operate under the premise of dynamic equivalence, not a word-for-word translation. It is with that in mind... I would invite you to notice an interesting passage, one of many found in this particular translation, but notice what the New Living Translation presents. It seems to have a very sad occurrence of lowering the respect that ought to be devoted unto God Himself. I would ask you to notice with me this passage from Matthew 7, verses 21 and following. This is a text exceedingly familiar to us, as we hear Jesus say, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. That rather stern warning, as you and I hear the Savior make that statement, I would invite you to listen to the way the New Living Translation presents it. I've written it there for your consideration, but this is the way it reads. "'Not all people who sound religious are really godly. "'They may refer to me as Lord, but they still won't enter the kingdom of heaven. "'The decisive issue is whether they obey my Father in heaven.' On judgment day, many will tell me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Go away, the things you did were unauthorized. Again, some significant changes have taken place. First of all, I would ask you to notice one of the statements at the outset. Not all people who sound religious are really godly he has removed some of the seeming authority from what was originally stated in the text. And furthermore, they may refer to me as Lord, but they still won't enter the kingdom of heaven. We appreciate that using a contraction, as he has chosen to do, is that which in fact presents a lowering of the character of the language employed. We understand the usage of contraction and they have their place, but not in something along the lines of the inspired and sacred Word of God. As if that isn't enough, notice how he continues. Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons. But then he replies, I never knew you. Go away, the things you did were unauthorized. We remember now the other translations with which we're a bit more familiar. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Where is that aspect of this text at all? He says, I never knew you, go away. The things that you did were unauthorized. And in the assertion of that word unauthorized, which again was not present in the original Greek, he has added to the Word of God something that was not really there. You'll also notice with me, Genesis 3, verse number 13, going back to the opening book in the Bible. What have these done with the New Living Translation? That was the occasion in which... We remember Adam and Eve were guilty of the sin in the Garden of Eden. You might recall that God, in fact, asked, What is this that thou hast done? When they had partaken of the forbidden fruit, and God, of course, appeared to them and, in fact, asked them that very penetrating question, What is this that thou hast done? Notice how that is rendered here. How could you do such a thing? Sounds more like what a parent might say to a child, not what the Almighty God said to Adam and Eve on that occasion. Do you notice with me a seemingly reduction in the thrust and majesty and power associated with the sacred text? You'll notice in light of all of that that I've at least put those statements at the bottom, whether it be with regard to the New Living Translation or whether it be with regard to the Living Bible paraphrased. It would seem we would not be able to recommend these for ourselves in light of personal Bible study or for others because these are just a sampling of the things that could have been listed concerning the changes and the way in which the Word of God was supposedly presented. Beyond those, what about another translation this evening? Even beyond this Living Bible paraphrased, what about the New English Bible, the N-E-B? What might we say about it? And would it be a reliable, trustworthy one? Would it be one we could recommend for ourselves or, in fact, for others? We might well begin with some initial notes about the translator or at least the chairman of the translation committee. His name was C.H. Dodd. And you'll notice that the New Testament was first presented in 1961. The entire Bible followed some nine years later in 1970. With regard to this, I would quickly point out that the other writings of Mr. Dodd, in fact, seem to read more closely akin to those of an infidel than to those trusted with producing a proper translation of the Bible. In fact, you'll notice that one of the statements that Mr. Dodd himself made is this, namely, that a Bible translator has an impossible task. Those are his words. He considered the challenge and charge and labor under which he produced this as really an impossible thing. And as if all of that wasn't enough, he is on record as saying he does not believe that Moses wrote the first books in the Bible. In fact, he isn't even convinced there was a man who ever lived by the name of Moses as the Bible would describe him. This is a gentleman, you see, overcome, it would seem, with some of the more modern, redactic approaches to the Scriptures. And as such, he isn't even convinced, you see, of what the Lord said in John chapter 5 when He said that Moses wrote it. Thus, he must certainly be calling into question much of what the Lord stated in terms of His identification of and approach to so much of what was written in the Old and New Testaments alike. I've actually presented one of the statements found in the introduction to that New English Bible. It reads as follows, But if paraphrase means taking the liberty of introducing into a passage something which is not there, to elucidate the meaning which is there, it can be said that we have taken this liberty only with extreme caution and in a very few passages where, without it, we could see no way to attain our aim of making the meaning as clear as it could be made. Taken as a whole, our version claims to be a translation so far as we could compass it. And out to the side I've written the word dangerous, for he admitted it himself, introducing into a passage what really was not there. Obviously, the goal behind such in his own words is to elucidate what he perceives the meaning of the passage to be. But again, it's based on his perception. It's based on his theology. It's based on his understanding of, based on his knowledge of the Bible, what that passage would be asserting. That, my friends, is dangerous. For we're reading then in those instances what he and that translation committee thought the text said not what God actually said. In light of all of that, let's look at just a few of the passages relative to this New English Bible. First of all, what does it do with respect to members of the Godhead? You and I would quickly admit that the greatest being of all is God and never should He be approached disrespectfully. In fact, He even gave commandment in Exodus 20 verse 7, His name was never to be taken in a vain way. And yet I wonder, what would thus it mean if one were to purposefully remove references to God as they would ordinarily have occurred in the Bible? Let's notice, in fact, this text in Genesis chapter 1, opening passage in the entirety of the Word of God. We well know that that in the King James translation reads as follows, "...in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth." And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Listen to the rendering that this any has set forth. In the beginning of creation, when God made heaven and earth, the earth was without form and void, with darkness over the face of the abyss, and a mighty wind that swept over the surface of the waters. What has this translation committee done? That latter reference, of course, is the one that throws up such a quick observation to you and me. When there the text, of course, for us reads, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and they he said, they said it was a mighty wind instead. The power of the Holy Spirit, the operation of and the efforts of reduced to a wind. As if that weren't enough. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. That passage we often recognize to be so great in terms of appreciating, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then various descriptive names of this son. Wonderful, Counselor, Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. I wonder if you'll notice, look at what Isaiah 9, 6 and how it reads in this translation. For a boy has been born for us, a son given to us to bear the symbol of dominion on his shoulder. And he shall be called in purpose wonderful, in battle godlike, father for all time, prince of peace. You'll notice he removed one of the descriptive names given in that listing. And as you give some thought to, in fact, the way this is presented... You and I see that in Isaiah 9, 6, it points directly to Jesus. The coming of the Christ, the efforts, and the kind of individual and kingdom that He would have. And yet one would have difficulty finding all of that majesty in the passage that you and I just noted. As you can see, this particular approach in this NEB is such that some of these matters concerning the very nature and presentation of the very members of the Godhead are in fact called into question. Perhaps one should give some thought to Pentecostalism, for it seems thoroughly ingrained in his presentation, in its presentation of the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians. In fact, at this point, I've simply given one verse, but I would ask you to notice already at the very end, many, many times in this chapter but notice the way this one verse at least reads. When a man is using the language of ecstasy, he is talking with God, not with men, for no man understands him. He is no doubt inspired, but he speaks mysteries. Listening to that, one has the def- definite impression that those tongues that were so often referenced in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, were in fact this ecstasy variety of language in which no human could understand it. That's what he said. Only God does. But again, that is nowhere near the character of those tongues as they are referenced and identified in the New Testament. Those tongues were the capability of speaking in a foreign language, a language someone on earth could understand a language that individuals were able, in fact, to understand, to produce from, and to obey. It was not a language that one would call an ecstatic variety of language, as those in the Pentecostal movement might, in fact, refer to them today. As if all of that weren't enough, notice, in fact, how Matthew sixteen eighteen is rendered. This is a particularly telling passage, as it describes, of course, that marvelous occasion when in the coast of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus had a conversation with Peter. It was in light of that conversation that we encounter that interesting passage when we find Jesus saying, "'Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven.'" And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Without looking at all of that, I would invite you to notice the way Matthew 16, 18 reads in the NEB. It reads, And I say this to you You are Peter, the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of death shall never overpower it. I would ask you to notice that those translators chose to use an appositive. You are Peter. There's a noun identified. Following that set off with a comma is the phrase, the rock, completely equating Peter and the rock on that, equa- in that occasion. And then he says, and on this rock I will build my church. As if to say Peter was the bedrock foundation for the church. As if to say that he was in fact the key on which the entirety of its doctrine would in fact rest. But we understand that wasn't what the Lord said. He, in fact, did not say on Peter that was done. Grammatically, it simply is impossible. For you and I will remember that when Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, that word Peter in Greek is, in fact, a masculine noun. However, that word rock he used next was feminine. He was not referring to Peter. And it was not on Peter that the church was built. We know it was that marvelous confession that Peter had just uttered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You'll notice all of that is called into question, and so sadly and so tragically so. Perhaps you'll notice there were those who began to appreciate some of the difficulties surrounding this new English Bible. And so it too underwent a revision. In 1989, the revision produced what is called out to the right, the Revised English Bible, sometimes simply uh, recognized as the REB, I would again ask you to notice that since it was merely a revision of that which was already an error, it still has many of the same problems and many of the same issues that you and I would have listed with respect to the NEB. Among many that might have been listed, still Isaiah 9-6 is a shame. In fact, in that word, in that particular passage, they have removed the word God again and replaced it with the word hero. And we understand that that simply is a sadness beyond description. Beyond all that, we might make a brief conclusion. Both the NEB and the REB thus are not word-for-word translations. They are merely, again, at best are dynamic equivalents, and we've already learned that those are problematic. And so in summary to tonight's lesson, as we've looked at these four translations, we might well summarize it the following way. The issue of discussing translations is significant and important and worthy of our attention because after all, our eternal destiny hangs on our obedience to that which is the Word of God and not the Word of men. As we've looked at our previous translations, the Cotton Patch Version, the Living Bible paraphrase now tonight, as well as this particular New English Bible, we have found some very concerning problems. So much so that again we would state these are not reliable. You and I should not rely upon these for eternal destiny. There is just too much at stake. Thus tonight as we give thought to what God's Word has to for us to appreciate and to obey. Thankfully, we do have reliable translations. Those that do faithfully present in a word-for-word way that which God has revealed. Taking back then to Isaiah 55, 11, that text we used as our Bible text for the evening, God said, My word will not return unto me void. It shall accomplish that which I please. We understand when these faulty translations are presenting what they present, it's not God's Word. But yet those faithful translations do present it and it will not return to him void. We witnessed this morning a baptism into the body of Christ and we of course appreciate that there may be others tonight who are in need of a public response to the gospel call of invitation. If we could be of assistance to you, realize that it's no human who has said it, but God has said, you must hear the word of the Lord. Romans 10, 14. You must believe Jesus, in fact, to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins under the banner of Acts two thirty eight. You must furthermore confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, set forth in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And you must be baptized for the remission of your sins. That taught on so many occasions. For instance, in Mark 16, 16. If tonight we could be of assistance to you in those set of acts, we would certainly wish to do that. If you have become a member of the body of Christ, having been baptized into it, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, but you have since wandered away from the safety of the fold of God, realize you need to come back and to do so in haste to your first love, Revelation 2, verse 5. And tonight, if we could pray with you and for you, For the strength in those days ahead that you'll be able to meet the challenges, we'd be happy and honored to pray that God would forgive you of those sins that currently stand between He and you. And if tonight we could be of assistance to you in either of those ways, would you not let that be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing?